Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Hello, I'm Audrey Brown and today in Focus in Africa here on the BBC World Service, we're talking about recently revealed documents detailing Russia's rules of engagement in Africa with particular focus on Niger. Our other conversations include one with Somalis angered and outraged at the recent killing of three women by their husbands. They want the government to step in and step up. They should inform both families that regardless of whatever they reach an agreement, the government will handle it. However, the government does not take this approach. Instead, they claim that the families have resolved the crime on their own. And if you find yourself afflicted with the spreading epidemic of conjunctivitis in East and Southern Africa, here is what not to do. Some people are using uh, salt water. So don't use salt water. No salt water. You okay. can't put salt water in the eye. Okay. Other things which people are using are the black tea. They use uh, garlic. Garlic? They, yes, they use garlic. It's Wednesday, the 21st of February. We start with the geopolitical realignment in Niger. Things are not easy for the government in Yame at the moment. Following a coup last year, its neighbours in the economic community of West African states imposed sanctions and suspended its membership. Niger retaliated by withdrawing from ECOWAS. The country is also in deep debt and unable to make payments, so the debt is piling up. $520 million in repayments is owing since the coup. Ordinary people, like Saidon in Yame, are feeling the pinch. The coup has changed many things. First of all, France is out. Nigerians now have the guarantee that no power from abroad is dictating us uh, what to do. I think this is a great achievement for us here in Niger. Second, management of our natural resources are now public. Peace and security are back. And we no more hear about terrorists attacking those villages surrounding Niger. Life is harder now, but it's due to the sanctions which were unjust, illegal and inhuman against Niger. Saidon was speaking from the capital of Niger. Now, when the coup happened last year, thousands of Nigerians welcomed the Russian mercenary forces that helped the new regime kick out France, the former colonial power. The quid pro quo was not clear. Now it is. According to documents revealed by the Royal United Services Institute, a leading think tank here in the UK, Jack Watling wrote a report on it, detailing what he calls the regime survival package. The regime survival package is how the Russians are internally describing a group of capabilities that ranges from personal protection for partner leaders, information operations to boost their popularity domestically, a range of economic protections against Western sanctions for how they might be behaving, and this provision of quite capable military forces to allow them to go after their internal opponents. David Otto is a counter-terrorism expert on Africa and director for the Geneva Centre for Africa Security and Strategic Studies. He's been telling me what he makes of what Jack Watling calls the regime survival package. 
Well, I think it's clearly to buy Russia's uh, unconventional tactics, retaining its influence within uh, certain African countries. For example, the likes of Niger, Mali, Burkina Faso, we've seen the same thing happening in Sudan, in Libya, in the Central African Republic, where the Russian strategy has been to try to protect countries against economic sanctions that they've received. For example, most of the military regimes you know, have been sanctioned by ECOWAS. It is also providing them with regime protection, but with regime protection, protection and military capabilities, they are able to stay in power for longer. I mean, a case in point is the fact that the three Sahelian border states of Mali, Burkina Faso have now established what they call the Liptakugoma Alliance, which effectively provides them the capabilities and the ability to defend themselves in what they describe as any external aggression. So it is correct to say that, you know, these countries are now enjoying what appears to be the backing of countries like Russia which, of course, is it's protecting its own interests, you know, against um, Western competitors. Right. Are we right to still it's, talk about Wagner or is it now Russia? The lines in terms of are very blurred, you know, because of this whole idea of plausible deniability and implausible deniability, which Russia wants to look at very carefully. We know that the demise of Yevgeny Prigovin was not the end of Wagner, because of course Prigovin was Wagner, but Wagner was not Prigovin. And what we're seeing is that there is a promise for these troops that you know are recruited both from Russia and all other countries, forming the new Wagner phase. So Wagner is still there. It is still providing that level of regime protection in exchange for mineral concessions, but also giving these countries the ability to continue to dig in their heels in defense against transferring power to democratic elected governments. We've seen in the Central African Republic, for instance, that the Russian forces of Wagner are able to extract mineral wealth. What does Niger have to offer? Of course, you know, Niger produces global uranium and, you know, France, you know, has been benefiting from that. One fifth of Europe's needs, you know, comes from Niger. Uh, Effectively, with a country like that, Russia would seem to balance the sanctions that have levied against it, but also to push European countries like France, you know, towards the Russian gas, kind of cutting them off. the Nigerian uranium route. So uh, for Russia, it's very strategic. Of course, you know, they have not been directly linked to the coup in terms of planning and preparation. But what I see here is that they are pickpocketing. The French have been kicked out. The Nigerian government is looking towards renewing you know, some of these uranium deals that existed with France. And Russia seems to be benefiting from this or seems to be the one that is going to benefit from this. Remember that Niger cannot act independently whether from an economic or military point of support from its neighbors Mali and Burkina Faso, who are strongly tied to Russian protection at this point in time. When the Nigerians kicked out the French, the Russians and Wagner were welcomed very enthusiastically by segments of the population in Niger. Do you think there's a chance that their optimism at a better kind of arrangement is justified? There is that initial euphoria of we've kicked out the French and we're welcoming the Russians, according to the narrative. That doesn't translate to practical implementation of uh, sustainable economic or social or fiscal policies. As time drags on, you know, there will be evidence of what kind of measures are being put in place. And so far, that is not happening because, of course, the regime is focusing on regime protection. The people would want to know what is it that the military junta is offering. And if there is no signs of any progress or there is no signs of any you know, movement in terms of progressing towards an economic sustainability, then I think, you know, the people will begin to ask questions, bearing in mind that Niger is still under very severe sanctions from ECOWAS. What about 
democracy? Because we now have a military regime. Are people concerned about that at the moment or are they thinking, well, let's do one thing at a time. First, let's dislodge the French, try and find a more equitable distribution of our resources, and then we look at the rest. I think from a Nigerian point of view, the common man is looking towards what are the changes. I mean, uh, prices of goods and services increasing. The common man does not care about the system of governance. I think for the people of Niger and the people of the region, I think what they are concerned more about is, is it in for them in terms of, you know, how the military junta controls the economy, how they can deal with the current sanctions. What is it for the people that they can survive on a daily basis? Could we see what had happened to the French happening to the Russians? And might it be that it would happen even sooner? I think the African population generally is getting more smarter compared to the pre-colonial days. You know, education has expanded you know, within the continent. So it, it, it will be much more difficult for any country, including Russia, to place itself as the messiah to provide Africans with the, the best outcome. That's the counter-terrorism expert, David Otto. Women in Somalia are up in arms over the violent deaths of three women who were brutally killed by their husbands. It all happened in the space of just one week, leaving many reeling with sorrow, shock and anger. One woman was locked in a room and left to burn to death in Mogadishu. This galvanized women around the country. We've been protesting the increasing violations against women. It used to be about domestic violence and rape, but now it has escalated to killings, burnings or dismemberment of women. In just two consecutive days, two women were brutally murdered by their husbands. Additionally, domestic violence cases are at an all-time high. Over the past few months, from 2023 to 2024, the number of cases have been steadily increasing. That's Mariam Takal, chair of the Somali Women Development Center. She told us that what sets Somalia apart from the rest of the world is its strong clan systems, which supersede the government. So courts of law are almost useless in dealing with violence against women. The problem stems from the clans, who are heavily armed. When a crime occurs, the first thing the clans do is collect money and attempt to resolve the issue by offering compensation to the families of the victims. What could be done to address this issue is for the government to intervene. They should inform both families that regardless of whatever they reach an agreement, if a crime has occurred, the government will handle it. However, the government does not take this approach. Instead, they claim that the families have resolved the crime on their own. Younger women are taking the fight to the system. They want change. One of those women is Mariam Mohammed Hussein in Garoue, which is in northeastern Somalia. Tell us what women in Somalia are feeling at the moment, because we know that uh, there have been public outcry, protests, anger at the deaths of three women recently at the hands of their husbands. Just tell us the women that you know and you're talking to. What are they saying? What are they feeling? What are they talking about? They brought feeling and anger contained with uh, sadness. I'm in crowds 
telling the government for justice and all about that. That is what's happening on the ground for now. What is the clan system? Clan system is um, elders and forming their customary laws called head in Somali, and it sometimes subsides from a legal mechanism. How does it affect young men? I think uh, for men, they affect in a positive way. Because if a man rapes or kills another person, and the clan elders will go to other clan elders to negotiate if uh, that man can roam freely unpunished and they take camels instead and money instead of that person to face his consequences. He can do whatever he likes, he can do whatever he comes into his mind and be whatever he wants to be. Now, the cases we're talking about, deeply upsetting, they're very scary as well. Tell me, are they unusual in the extremeness of them? I mean, a woman being locked in a room and burned to death, that is, you barely have words for it. Is, is, is that an extreme case or is it not that unusual? It's unusual and very extreme and in our society. And past four weeks, they've been happening, a lot of them. And now we have three cases of husband burning his wife alive and she's pregnant. And we have two others and that killed their wives by knife. So these cases, are, they don't often happen often. And, and these are very extreme and unusual to our society. But there is other inequality that Somali women face. And uh, for example, rape and TBV, they happen on a daily basis. Rape and gender-based TB. violence. Okay, so, so women being beaten up, women being assaulted, all of those things. So how does society deal with those cases? Unfortunately, most of women don't even go to the police because they have fear of shame, fear of stigma. They don't even report to the police. And uh, there's before going to police, they may seem to go for the clan elders, and the clan elders will solve that case accordingly by sitting with the as I said before with the other clan elders. But if that case goes to the police, it's a very weak, and they don't even get the perpetrator to face what he's done to the to the woman. What do you think should happen? What do you think Somalia should do? I think by addressing the root causes of gender-based violence, also by challenging the cultural norms, also strengthening Somali legal protections, I think providing comprehensive support and services, a path towards justice and gender equality can be forged and will be the solution to all what's happening now on the ground. Do you think that will happen soon? I think we have to have a hope, at least, but it will be a long battle and it will not going to be easy for us. We will do what we can do to see those changes very soon. That's Maria Mohamed Hussein in Garoe. We contacted the police in Somalia. They didn't want to give us an interview, but they did send a statement which reads in part that violence in Somalia does not only occur against women. It happens mostly in families and is against both men and women. The statement continues, most of the victims are men who are victimized by their spouses. And that's the end of the quote.
The police said they were carrying out an investigation into the deaths of the three women. Some people call it Apollo. Don't ask me why. Others call it pink eye. And this I do know. It's because it makes one or both of your eyes pink, weepy and swollen, if you have it. The official name for it is conjunctivitis, and it's spreading rapidly in East and Southern Africa. Tanzanians were the first to come down with it in late December, early January. Then it spread to coastal Kenya, northern Malawi, the Comoros Islands, Madagascar and most recently Mozambique. It spreads easily, so who knows where next? Cases are declining in Tanzania, but worryingly, some people have been using unregulated remedies which have caused blindness. The Ministry of Health is on the alert, as I've been hearing from Dr. Bernadetta Shilio from the National Eye Care Program. First of all, let me start by explaining a little bit of what is it, the conjunctivitis. Conjunctivitis is the inflammation of the conjunctiva, and when I say conjunctiva, is the thin outer layer of the eye covering the eye globe and the eyelids as well. And uh, it's an inflammation which can happen due to bacterial viruses or fungi. But uh, when we speak of the epidemic, usually it's the viral as the causes. So tell me this, the current outbreak, is that an epidemic? Yes, the current episode is, is an epidemic because it has spread very fast and a lot of people have been involved so the presentation is not normal right how does it actually affect people and what are the symptoms uh-huh. it spreads from one individual to the other through contact direct contact or indirect contact so from the discharge or the tears of an individual who has the disease either by touching their eyes and then they shake hands with the, an individual who is not infected and that individual touches their eyes, then the disease can spread. But indirectly, if the person who has the disease uses things like handkerchiefs or tissues or other items, and then those items, they get into contact with the person who is not affected, then the infection can spread. But also things which we use, the public things, for example, the doors, the windows or the tables or in offices when you handle the files or the pen, then it can spread easily to to the other person. I mean, I've had conjunctivitis before. Itchy eyes, Uh very red, painful, lots of tears produced. Is it dangerous? by itself is not that dangerous yes but in the usually there's no that much pain there is pain yes but not pain which you cannot persevere so there is also swelling there is also redness and then some discharge a little bit photophobia from for example if somebody goes outside or in there is bright light the eyes are very sensitive and they get pain so when is it dangerous why is there concern now that it spreads so widely because it affects more people and it makes people not able to function well. For example, with the photophobia, you cannot function well. 
you will need to stay at home. But now with the fear of having the disease, everybody will, will like to have a remedy because this uh, infection does not have a treatment to heal the, the disease. So the treatment which is given is only to help with the, with the presentation. And uh, if you tell people that there is no treatment, people like to look for their own remedies. And that's when it becomes dangerous. And with the way they, nowadays, the networking, the social media is very widespread. People will come and say, you can use this, you can use this. And what and, are they uh, suggesting people that might... people use? Uh, uh, because I know that it caused <laughs> some people to go blind. No, it's just so that people know what they shouldn't use, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in order to protect them. Yeah. Some people are using uh, salt water. Okay. So don't use salt water. No salt water. You can't put salt water in the eye. Other things which people are using are the black tea. They use the black tea. They use uh, garlic. Garlic? Yes, they use garlic. They also use uh, ginger, ginger juice. They also use other herbs. They uh, ground them and they use that juice on the eye. Some people are using also seawater. Others, the salt water, they use the hot salt water. So none of that. You've got to go to the doctor. You've got to find out what it is, and they'll give you cream or they'll give you antibiotics. Is that what you're suggesting is the only treatment that people should use? Yes. So tell me this. This outbreak has spread very rapidly and very far across parts of Africa. So Tanzania coastal Kenya, northern Malawi, Comoros Islands, Madagascar, and also Mozambique. How come it spreads so widely? Yeah, because it is highly contagious. So if one person is affected and travels, because, for example, in Tanzania, we started with one region, but now all the 26 regions are affected. And when you ask the report from those other regions, they'll tell you that this person said they have been in contact with somebody who came from Dar es Salaam with the same illness. And uh, we know Tanzania is uh, among the East African countries whereby people come in and go. So maybe people came for business in Dar es Salaam and they went back to their home infected and then they spread. So the same for Mombasa. So basically human beings. And you were saying earlier that hygiene is one of the ways in which you can limit the spread of it, right? So wash your hands. Is that one of the tips that you'd give people? Yes, to wash their hands every time after you have touched your eyes. And we also advise them to use tissue paper, which are disposable. So they dispose and wash their hands. But for everybody now needs to have that high hygiene of washing their hands and limiting touching of hands and also touching the eyes. Dr. Bernadette Shilio from the National Eye Care Program in the Tanzanian Ministry of Health. Focus on Africa was compiled by Stefania Okereke, Bella Hassan and Rob Wilson. Sunita Nahar supervised our efforts. Jonathan Greer is our technical producer. The editors are Alice Mudengi and Andre Lombard. Do remember to like, follow and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Audrey Brown. We'll talk again next time.